This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on a centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. Hello, everybody. In today's episode, we interviewed Trent McConaughey from Ocean Protocol and Big Chain DB. And just as a quick note, today's episode is a little bit longer than normal. It's uh, an hour and a 15-minute interview. Um, and this is kind of a thing that I'm going to be, do more of in 2018, which are these longer interviews and kind of a bimodal system where more like 20-minute interviews and also more like two-hour interviews. Um, so this is an experiment with that. And today's interview is kind of broken into two parts. The first is all about cryptoeconomic primitives, and the second is all about um, kind of societal stuff. And so if you want to societal stuff, so if you uh, feel free to listen to either or if you want to. Um, okay, so with that, yeah, a couple things, uh, like an overview of what Trent and I talked about. We talk a lot about cryptoeconomic primitives today, um, and Ocean Protocol uses two of them. Um, they use curation markets and token curated registries, and they use the curation markets essentially as a way to signal towards good data, um, where you say, hey, I think this data is going to be awesome, so I'm going to stake towards it. And then when a bunch of people use that data, you essentially get more rewards because you staked to it, and you get more money for staking earlier. Um, so it uses curation markets, and it also uses um, token curated registries and it uses those because they create they they create log rewards on um, on data sets and what I mean by that is they don't want too much centralization and so if you have a bunch of people getting stuff from a single data set then that'd be pretty centralized but the reward function is it goes through a log function so it says hey if you get a bunch of this stuff we're actually going to push through a log function so you get a the log of that rather than the like big number so instead of like 100 it'll be like 10. Um, so because of that they also need to have a token curated registry on um, the agents in the system where you say hey um, there can't be Reese 1 and also Reese 12 you essentially have a whitelist for those different agents that are acting there. So. Um, that is how they use it, and a couple notes on it. First, I always like to ask myself, um, should you be using a curation market or should you be using a token curated registry? Um, and in this example, it's perfect because it's like, well, what would happen if they flipped? Could you have a token curated registry or a TCR for the data? And could you have a curation market for the agents in the system? And I think you could here, you can imagine a TCR that says, hey, this is an awesome data list and people want to get in on that awesome data list. Um, and you can also imagine a curation market for the actors in the space and the agents and saying, hey, I, uh, these people have various stakes toward them to show that they're good actors or whatever. That's possible. Um, but whenever you're thinking about this, and, and in general, I trust Ocean Protocol for whatever they did, um, think about essentially are you trying to make make a binary or a gradient you know something like a tcr is really good at making a binary whether you're in the list or you're out and something like a curation market is much better at a gradient um, where you're just signaling and that's the other key thing here is are you trying to make sets of things or lists of things if so then use a tcr or are you just trying to kind of signal to things if you're trying to signal then probably use curation markets so that's one side of things is what happens when you flip the two and always when you're doing this yourself ask yourself tcr curation market um how should which one should i use um and the second thing that i want to say here is kind of doing some weird abstraction of these crypto economic systems um so, so ocean protocol is it has its 
it's proof of X layer, um, and they're essentially proving that you are proof of like um, giving people data. Um, and then they also have the data reputation layer, um, where you're you have the curation markets around um, for which data is good, and then they also have the agent reputation layer, which is the token curator registries around that. And I think that those three buckets actually kind of hold in many different crypto economic systems, where you have your proof of X layer, which is like your utility value layer, where you're trading some scarce resource or capital for tokens in the system. And then you have your these kind of reputation layers there, um, the data reputation layer, and then also uh, essentially the subjects of the system and what data you're looking at, and then the agent reputation layer, which is, are like the objects that are operating on that system. So uh, I think that's an okay abstraction to use here. Or another way to think about it is you have the proof of X, where you're essentially proving that you've done something in the past, um, while the curation side and it is showing that you think about the future. So this is where you use all these crypto economic primitives, whether it's TCRs, curation markets, um, prediction markets, whatever. You're saying, hey, I think I'm going to stake some stuff now because I think in the future something will happen and I'll get more more money back as a result. Um, the other final way to think about these from this abstracted way is as kind of, you know, that there's not only curating based off of the objects where you're saying, I think this is good or I think that's good, but there's also curation as a result of kind of reputations. So people that have done good things get reputation as objects um, going forward. So yeah, I think that that abstraction is a fine way to think about these crypto economic systems in general. And then the final thing I want to say here is we talked today about um, a lot about staking here, and this is just a big thing that people are talking about in the space these days, both with proof-of-stake algorithms at the uh, protocol level, but also at the application layer, um, because staking essentially allows you to decrease your token velocity, which uh, increases its value. Um, so people are thinking a lot about staking these days, um, and that's part of this kind of emerging buckets for how to use your tokens. There's the proof of X side, where you, you get the tokens for doing the utility, there's the staking side, there's also the governance side, and then finally the medium of exchange side. And then the other thing I want to highlight here is about this log rewards function that Trent was talking about. So this I think is actually really powerful. He was talking about in the context of data providers and not trying to make too much centralization. Um, so if you are really, really good and you do all your stuff and you should get a ton of money for it or whatever, actually you get the log of that. I think this is actually pretty similar but from like a societal perspective, the things I'm trying to do around these memes and pledges and commitments to decentralized power. Um, so, you know, for me, after $45,000, when you don't get happier, when you get more money, I get 50% of the money that I make back to the system and, and, and essentially giving it to charities or whatever. And I think that that's one way to think about it. I'm essentially doing like demerge on myself, kind of like water cycle evaporation where I'm evaporating the money that I get back to the system instead of like our current, you know, capitalist systems where the money, essentially money compounds instead of um, getting demerged. But I think that these the, a log reward function is another really good similar way to say this where you say, hey, people should get a good amount of money at the beginning, but then as that keeps increasing, they probably don't need all the massive amount of money or whatever. Uh, so giving log reward functions, I think, is another powerful way to think about this. Um, and the third thing is that later when we talk, in the second half of the episode, we talk a lot about tokenizing the enterprise and the map. And tokenizing the enterprise is this really great concept where you essentially take a company, um, you convert all the equity in that company to tokens, and then you backfill those tokens for engagement. So if you're a really engaged Facebook user, you get a lot of Facebook tokens, and then you essentially give those tokens utility uh, with things like distributed governance. And I think that this could be really awesome in the future because it could provide transparency and aligned incentives. But, and we're, we're just at the beginning of seeing some of these experiments 
we like kick and ken, props and you now, numeri and numeraire, and I really hope that those initial experiments show that we can create transparency and aligned incentives around these things, because if so, then we might see SoundCloud tokenize themselves, and then we get to things that could be really good for society, like Twitter and Facebook tokenizing themselves. Um, so that's one side of things. The other side is we talked about this map idea that Trent has, which is essentially a, a series of steps that we need to take as society in order to kind of um, self-actualize as a, as a whole society. And this is a great idea, and you, you can imagine it's like those steps as like places where money can be put to solve a given problem for a given impact. And that's super, super aligned with the stuff I'm doing around co-evolving the phase shift to crypto capitalism by founding the Ethereum Commons Co-op, um, which is some of the other work that I do. And the key concept on both of them is essentially this kind of self-tithing, demerge thing, and then sending that money and pointing that money at various buckets. So what you know, what Trent thinks of as the map, um, and as nodes in that map, you can also think of as buckets, um, or as like Giveth calls them, these decentralized autonomous communities, or in Stake Tree, it's an individual like pages or whatever. And I just, I'm really excited to, I'm starting to MVP um, these buckets with on Stake Tree. I'm excited to then federate with, you know, Giveth on this and, and really start to see, hey, can we create these awesome buckets that a lot of people can point their money towards that then gets um, maximized for impact um, in terms of this big um, map that we're trying to build. So with that, uh, thank you so much for listening um, and enjoy the interview today with Trent. And finally, before I begin, here are two quick things that I'm um, leading that you might be interested in. The first is I'm leading, co-leading the ETH Denver Hackathon, which is the next in the series of ETH Global Hackathons. Uh, you know, we're really working with the ETH Waterloo team. We expect 500 hackers, awesome speakers um, like Joe Lubin, William O'Gayar, Linda Sia. Uh, we have these awesome workshops, both on the coding side, things like crypto economic primitives, bonding and staking, etc. And then also some great non-coding workshops, which are emphasizing as well, things like governance, complex system dynamics. Um, so if you're interested, it's February 16th through 18th, and you can go and learn more at ethdenver.com. And then the second thing that I'm doing that you might be interested in is what's called the Ethereum Commons Co-op. Uh, and this is a new project that I'm starting that essentially allows for more cross-project co-evolution and kind of facilitates that. And then also tells the story about um, this new future that we want to live in that internalizes externalities. Uh, so if you want to learn more about that, you can go to my Twitter. Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you're listening to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. And in this podcast, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world, where we have a couple different series that focus on different system scopes. And today we're kind of focusing on two different of these scopes. One is the series A macro systems, where we'll be thinking about humanity and, you know, where we're headed, you know, the philosophical technological future. And then second, we're going to also talk about um, software systems and, you know, crypto economics and kind of what machine systems exist in code. Um, and to talk about both these things, I'm very happy to introduce Trent McConaughey to the show. Uh, Trent works at the intersection of AI plus blockchain and is the CTO of BigChainDB and Ocean Protocol. Trent, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Hi there. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to chat. So I guess let's actually start more on the software system side and... Um, you know, Trent, could you guys just give us a an overall view on the things that you're doing all around data with both Ocean and BigChain DB? Sure. So um, uh, I'll start with BigChain DB and then lead it into Ocean. Um, BigChain DB has been um, out for about a couple of years now, actually, and it's a blockchain database. Uh, 
And what that means is it has characteristics of a database where um, you have querying and um, uh, not only like uh, querying type language and so on, but also fast querying and then bringing in blockchain characteristics of decentralized, immutable and assets, you know, creating assets, issuing assets. And so it's sort of a way to combine the benefits of both of those. So it's meant to be um, complementary uh, in the stack, uh, the decentralized stack to things like file systems like Filecoin and a processing component like Ethereum. So just like in the traditional LAMP stack or other um, compute stacks, we see that there's a decentralized stack for, um, for a decentralized stack and uh, BigChainDB plays a role there. Uh, so that's BigChainDB. Um, and, uh, and then with Ocean, um, it is uh, uh, higher in the stack where at the end of the day, what it's trying to do is be a substrate for data. So to make it really easy to build data marketplaces on top, whether they're centralized or decentralized. So it has um, an incentive mechanism to have a high quality supply of data. So it's all about maximizing the supply of high quality data. And that's not only for price data within a data marketplace framework, but also the data commons. So um, basically people who are um, submitting data and referring data can um, actually get compensated for it, sort of resolving this classic question of data wants to be free, it also wants to be expensive, so there's kind of a new answer to that. And um, so it's really this, this data substrate to po help power data marketplaces and a data commons. And in fact, it does generalize to a more general service layer as well. But we, you know, talking about data is really good focus. And it's really tuned towards AI applications. Um, these, you know, AIs themselves for, for classification and for regression especially, are insatiable in their demand for data. You know, you improve the data by um, the, the amount of data by 10x or 100x, and you can reduce the error from 20% to 5% to 1% and more. So it can make all the difference between an invisible AI product and a feasible one, or a feasible one and a profitable one. So that's really, um, you know, BigChainDB and Ocean. Uh, BigChainDB, a database for the decentralized stack, and Ocean Protocol, a uh, substrate for data marketplaces and a global data commons. Great. So uh, I think there's a lot to dive in there. I think that's a really good overview. I guess, so staying on the BigChainDB side for just a quick second, you're saying, yeah, so I can see how it's complementary to something like Ethereum, where you say, hey, you're using Ethereum for smart contract kind of computation. Um, and then, you know, saying, though, that it's like uh, complementary to something like Filecoin, I kind of hear it as something maybe similar. I guess Filecoin is purely just a storage of blobs, while this is maybe the store, the actual database. Is that right? Is that kind of the distinction between? That's correct. Two? Yeah, like that's correct. Like for an, an Amazon Web Services, for example, which is you know the centralized, as centralized cloud, um, you've got Amazon S3 for storing blobs, and Amazon DynamoDB or say MongoDB or something for structured data, right? Great. So the blobs, um, you know, you reference it via um, a URL or the hash in a sense. And with um, the, the structured data, you typically find it via queries, right? Via um, some sort of uh, structured query language, like classic SQL, SQL for structured query language, or the NoSQL type queries too that you find in Mongo and the like, right? So BigChainDB is like a decentralized Mongo. And in fact, we wrap MongoDB itself. So it's mm -hmm. a very apt comparison. Cool. So I guess one other thing to check there is 
I'm imagining, and I don't know too much about these, but there are things like these, you know, parallel processing um, server clusters, things like Hadoop. Um, and, and feel free to correct yeah. me as I'm wrong here, but how does something like, why? So let's say I'm, I'm in here, I'm coding my smart contract application on Ethereum, and I'm like, okay, I'm using Filecoin to store some like images that I'm using. You know, why would I use, I guess, Big Chain DB over something like MongoDB over something like Hadoop to store my actual, to have my database? Yeah, so overall, um, the question is, uh, where do you want to have the sovereignty of the data, right? Um, do you want your users to, to control it, um, but maybe have it stored in a decentralized way? Or do you want it to be sitting on, you know, some centralized company like Amazon or some other service provider, right? And, and the answer is the same reason you're using Ethereum rather than um, EC2 or the same reason you're using Filecoin instead of S3, right? It's because you get the, these different benefits for decentralization. Um, the main one, uh, when it comes to sort of personal use, is about um, uh, regaining the sovereignty of your own personal data, right? Um, yet still being able to use that personal data within the context of uh, various web services, social networks, et cetera, right? Um, there are other uses too. So um, overall, um, when you when you think about it, um, you know, let's say for your application, you're going to store the data, things like, um, let's say you've got a music service, right? Maybe the songs themselves and the images for albums might be stored in, uh, say, Filecoin. And uh, the business logic e stuff would be in Ethereum. Um, and, but then the, the lists of the metadata, um, the, the IP rights licensing all of this, um, the massive libraries of you know, hundreds of millions of songs, um, that's all in uh, BigChainDB. And in the case of BigChain, um, it is you know, designed to be very efficient. And so you can store a lot more data on, on BigChain than Ethereum, which is you know, not really designed for massive amounts of storage, right? Um, and it doesn't really have any querying out of the box, whereas that's the whole point of BigChain. It's a difference between, you know, uh, well, a database and processing, right? Like these are different pieces of the stack, right? Yep. Uh, it's, it's very simple that way. Cool. Yeah, so that makes sense. Um, so, and as you say, yeah, like the key thing for why you'd want to use is instead of using something like Mongo, you can instead have the users regain sovereignty over their data, but still use it within these applications. So that makes sense. Um, I guess then kind of transitioning over to Ocean. Um, I, first, so yeah, so it sounds like you know, ocean is, and, and then you use this word substrate, um, and I'd like to dive into that word for a bit more because I think it's a very powerful word, but not as many people use it. Um, is substrate, is, you know, similar to protocol where it's like this protocol for these new data marketplaces, kind of a substrate for these new data marketplaces, or how do you use the term substrate there? Yeah, so uh, ocean is a protocol, but protocol isn't that descriptive as well, right? Because sort of every new building block in this emerging decentralized stack is a protocol, right? Just like if you say it's it's SaaS, well, SaaS doesn't tell you that much, right? Because, you know, you have these different building blocks, right? Um, or a library in traditional compute stacks. So um, it is a protocol in that, you know, there's a, um, a clearly defined um, set of uh, uh, behaviors expected from it, you know, how, how the computers talk to each other and so on. But um, then uh, beyond, it's a substrate in the sense of, uh, well, things build on top of it. But maybe I'll be. I'll start with an analogy. Um, so I, I assume you've you know bought airline tickets online, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know you might use say Kayak or maybe uh, Hitmonk or yep, some um, aggregator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or it could be you know maybe you go to AmericanAirlines.com or something too. So, but if you ever go to Kayak, you know you do a search for say flying to Berlin because everyone wants to come to Berlin, of course. <laughs> and um, and uh, you know you'll get a bunch of results, and then let's say you go to um, Hitmonk, and you'll get very similar results. You know the same flights, maybe slightly different orders, 
And, you know, why is that? And the answer is that they're all actually accessing the same database below, right? Um, and it's a database that, um, called Sabre um, slash Amadeus that's been around for a couple decades, actually. And um, so that database was initially started in the late 80s, actually, um, by one airline, and then it kind of grew in usage and kind of took over the industry. But now, basically, we have this common data substrate for airline data. So any one of these aggregators, um, they just plug into this database, whether it's Expedia, Travelocity, Kayak, whatever, um, or even the individual airlines, right? And, you know, the, the price offers are there, et cetera, et cetera. And then we actually see a lot of innovation on the UX level and other ways of bundling things, et cetera, right? Um, so that's sort of, and that's been really great, right? It's very good for the consumer. We have all this variety of, of, of UX, et cetera. Um, compare that to the world of, of data where, you know, let's say you want to buy data. You can go to various um, data marketplaces right now. They're mostly centralized. But they only have a small amount of data that's limited in scope, et cetera. You know, make, like you go to Bloomberg for your, your feed related to the stocks and stuff. And, you know, other, other places you might have to go to buy weather data and stuff, right? But what if there was some universal saber for data itself, right? Um, not just airline flights that are available, but a, a huge broad swath of data, right? And, um, and that data isn't residing there. It's basically the listings, just like the flights themselves don't reside on the on Sabre, it's the pointers to buying the flights that connect you through, right? So Ocean is basically about maintaining the listings of all the different data that is available, pointing to where the data might be stored, uh, whether it's centralized or decentralized, or even behind um, a firewall. Um, and it's basically this giving this vast supply of data that then centralized and decentralized marketplaces can be selling on top, right? Got it. Yeah. So and, and of course the commons too. So. Once again, it's I, sorry, but it, yeah, it's really, really important to balance uh, the for sale data with the commons data. So anyway, mm. go ahead, sir. Yeah, so let's let's dive into that in a second. I guess I want to check in on this this term substrate. That makes sense. That it's kind of uh, and, and and I guess just to more differentiate between substrate and and protocol. That that substrate is is kind of this. Uh, I, I guess it's this. I guess are there things that aren't data substrates? <laughs> is there another example of a substrate? Uh, well, you know, to me, I mean, substrate isn't maybe a very technical term, but it kind of gives this idea that there's something a bit more meaty there rather than, um, uh, yeah, but honestly, it's, it's just another word, right? Um, uh, protocols, you know, they can be thinner or fatter, right? So maybe substrate is just another word for a fat protocol, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but another way to think about it too, though, is that, um, sometimes we, we call ocean, a, um, a data economy, right? Because it's a collection of marketplaces, you know, it's got this overall incentive for, um, where these different marketplaces can hook in for data and for other resources too, like compute, et cetera, but really focusing on the data to start. Um, so, you know, rather than just a single um, marketplace, which of course can't be an economy on its own, right? You really need to have this collection of them. Together, yeah, that makes sense. And I think, yeah, I just wanted to dive in on that word substrate um, because I think it's a powerful one. I think I think you're right. It's maybe so, it's just similar to something like a FAT protocol. Um, okay, so... So you have, um, you know, I guess one other question here is um, before going deeper into Ocean is, do you Ocean and Big Chain DB? How do do they interact with each other? Yeah. So um, overall, um, it's one company, of course, that is building right now Big Chain DB GmbH out of Germany. And actually, for Ocean, we are partnering with a company out of Singapore called uh, Dex, and um, they have traditionally been a centralized data exchange, um, and they. Uh, uh, found issues with the centralized part, things like people looking to sell data um, were hesitant to give up control of their data um, to a centralized marketplace. So so Dex saw the writing on the wall that they wanted to go towards being a, a decentralized marketplace. 
So we um, joined forces with them and are rolling out, you know, not, not just this um, sort of raw substrate, but um, one of the things we're building together is actually a reference marketplace design. So that way other people can come along and copy and paste it and let, you know, 100 or 10,000 um, marketplace flowers bloom, mm. right? So it sounds like, so kind of like an, ERC, uh, an ERC standard, but for data marketplaces. Is that right? Uh, a little bit, yeah, but it's a lot more about the implementation and stuff too, right? Uh, so it's, um, you know, ERC is a very simple protocol with just a few, you know, um, functions that you have to implement, whereas here it's it's sort of like, you know, there's a front-end UX with a, an API and so on, and um, from the API perspective of uh, Marketplace for the price stuff, and then one level below, um, the API for the, the Ocean Network itself is much more just about um, proving that you've made the data available. And then um, a curation on that, and this is via curation market. So those are really kind of the the two core building blocks. Um, once again, it's it's a proof, um, generally proof of making data available, but there will be other proofs, um, and then curation. So you could call the the ocean network um, a, a proofed curation market, if you will, or a curated proofs market, um, whatever you want. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, right? Because it combines this idea of a, um, a proof of work, um, you know, or proof of something like making data available, but generally something worky uh, with a curation market, which is very stakey, right? So yeah. um, it's kind of a, a novel design um, of combining these proofs kind of attached at the hip. But what it gives you is this, um, you know, very nice signal for, um, of, you know, relative qualities of data, right? So rather than Ocean deciding that this data set is high quality and this one isn't, we leverage curation markets where people can put their money where their mouth is of what they think is high quality and not. Awesome. So, yeah, so let's um, let's dive into crypto economic primitives and curation markets and token curated registries, which is one of my favorite topics personally. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so let's talk. So I guess tell me um, what is um, what is a curation market and what um, how does uh, Ocean Protocol um, use a curation market for data? Yeah, so uh, overall, a curation market is a means to get a sort of reputation system on data um, in a way that has you know economic interests aligned. Um, and you can use this reputation system then as a means to, uh, you know, signals for people to choose whether or not to, to download or even buy a data set, right? So that's one way of framing it. Um, another way is you can think of it like a, a, a lightweight ICO of every single data set, right? So if I put a data set on there and I stake on it, say it's good, you know, that I'm vouching for it, um, then others can um, start to invest in it too. And as other inve- others invest in it, then um, the price of the data set goes up. So um, that's a couple ways of thinking about it, right? Um, you know, our reputation market with, you know, with teeth based on tokens, um, or ICOing. And another one is basically putting your money where your mouth is in terms of just betting on it. And what, what Ocean is trying to do is, um, maximize the supply of curated data or, you know, and that's a proxy for high quality data because, you know, we don't decide that. Um, so, uh, the very, very, uh, you know, we, we, we had a lot of design iterations, you know, towards the token design and um, the the token design that we have right now, and it's not cast in stone, you know, we're giving ourselves the flexibility to change this, um, is where it's um, you get tokens if you have served up a data set that you have bet on uh, when asked. And um, you get the, the more you have bet on that data set, the more tokens you get. And, um, and, and there's a sliding price. So if you're early in betting on this, um, then the price uh, is lower than if you're late on betting it. 
So, um, and that's a key thing about curation markets, right? There's this sort of function of, you know, if I was the first um, person to bet on it, or I submit, I published the data myself in the first place, then um, to get um, I, I, um, that first fraction of tokens, it might cost me, um, like, of tokens in that um, data set, call it data set X. So let's say you want to get 500 tokens of data set X. Um, then uh, maybe I have to spend um, five ocean tokens. But to get the next 500, I might have to spend 10 ocean tokens. And to get to the next 500, I might have to spend 15. And by doing this, it's um, rewarding um, the people who are making the data available in the first place. And then it's rewarding the early adopters. And so that's the mechanic. Now, um, so that's kind of step one, right? I submit the data. Um, I have to stake on it to say that, you know, I have the copyrights on it um, as well. And, um, and then others can come in and stake on it too. And the thing is, if we want to get rewards from that, um, there's two mechanisms. One of them is actually serving up the data, and then it's the mining uh, rewards. Um, and the second way is, if many, many people follow me, and I want to pull out, maybe because I'm not no longer you know, interested in the value of the data set, or I just want to cash out, then I can. I can convert my tokens for that data set back to ocean tokens. right? So they really are sort of derivatives in the classical sense. Um, and that's a standard, you know, how it's standard approach to token markets, sorry, to curation markets. The difference with Ocean is that the curation markets function is bound to this work proof, right? So um, when you are um, serving up the data set, making it available, um, your block reward, your expected block reward is proportional to the amount you have staked in the data set, right? So that's really a key distinction, right? So, and what this does is that, um, by doing this, it actually binds together uh, various possible stakeholders in the ecosystem. You've got, you know, the, the miners are the keepers on one side, the people just running the nodes. You've got people serving up data, and you've got people who are, um, you know, publishing the data or referring the data. And how it binds them all together is saying you kind of have to do all of the above, right? You have to um, uh, uh, stake on the data, curation market style. Uh, which means you've either um, published it or you have, um, you know, bet on it in a referral sense. And you also have to serve it up when you're asked. And you actually, if you don't serve it up when you're asked, then, you know, um, well, actually, you know, you know, if you're not saying you're making it available, then um, you're fine. If you say you're making it available and you don't serve it up, then you would lose stake, right? Got it. So that, that's kind of the new thing, basically, is, uh, yeah, this, this work function tied to curation markets. And it kind of gives curation markets more teeth, right? Um, mm -hmm. So we're so, pretty excited with that. Yeah. So let's let me let me try to break that down and, and see if see if I've gotten it correctly. So yeah. So at a high level, I mean, I do like a lot of your um, different explanations of curation markets, whether it's a lightweight ICO on each data set or the putting your money where your mouth is and betting on it. Um, and the goal here, as you say, is this kind of the the for you guys, you're essentially doing mechanism design with curation markets in order to maximize the supply of curated data, which is a proxy for high quality data. Um, and I guess. You know, thinking about this curation market, so it's like, okay, let's say, so I'm Reese, I have um, some awesome data. I'm telling you, Trent, this data is great. Um, I put it there and I say, I'm, I'm pretty sure this data is going to be awesome. Um, and so I'm going to stake some of my, some tokens to um, this data and say, hey, um, this is awesome data. I'm going to stake, you know, 10 ocean tokens or whatever to this data. And then as then once other, when, when other people kind of see this data and they're like, oh my God, this data is awesome. Like if one of our friends sees it, then he or she also can stake tokens to that data set. They'll get, um, for them, it'll it'll be less, uh, because they're less in on the early adopter curve, um, it'll cost more for them to stake to that data set. And then once, um, once someone actually accesses that data, then 
I, as the person who both produced it and then the other person who was in on it, we get kind of rewards based off of um, our essentially where we were at in that er initial like curation market curve. Is that is that kind of correct? Yeah, that's very close. And um, good job in actually capturing all that. And the key thing is um, your expected rewards. Um, you get expected rewards based on how much you've staked. And given if you um, you have to be serving it up when asked. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and why I say expected rewards, it's in a very similar vein to Bitcoin. So taking a bit a step back um, to how Bitcoin works, right? Um, what you know, Bitcoin it has an objective function, which is to maximize the security of the Bitcoin network, right? And uh, it defines security as um, you know making it really hard to unroll the list of transactions that are on it, on its log, right? And then um, it says, okay, um, and make it. It says sort of, and a proxy for that is. Um, the degree of security is how much electricity is going into it, assuming everyone has the same modern ASICs, right? So um, in a sense, what it comes down to is uh, in Bitcoin, people maximizing um, the, the electrons in the network, right? And this is why we're seeing more and more power usage. Um, and uh, But interestingly, you know, at every given block reward interval, say every 10 minutes, it doesn't say, okay, well, um, you're going to get um, your uh, Bitcoins proportional to how much you spent like how much electricity you put in, right? You know, maybe I ran my laptop and I get in, you know, one one hundred thousandth of a, of the bit, the block reward because I put in a tiny amount. No, um, I have a one one hundred thousand chance or whatever of of getting the Bitcoin, and it's a much lower probability than that. But it's just to give a feel. Yep. Instead, um, you know, it's it's a roll of the dice, and the dice gets rolled, and um, there's only one winner, and that winner gets all of the block reward, right? Um, however, the expected value of Bitcoin is for me to get, you know, that one one thousandth or ten thousandth of the reward, right? And uh, with Bitcoin, it's interesting, right? Um, you you get the same expected value, it's just very high variance, yep. right? Um, but then you have the pools that emerge on top, the mining pools, that essentially reduce the variance. So if I do want to get block reward for just running my my laptop, I join a mining pool and let that laptop run overnight and you know, maybe over time it makes some money, right? And because you have this variance reduction mechanism in the pool, but that's emerged on top. Similar with Ocean. So with Ocean, um, you know, it's trying to maximize um, the supply of curated data. That's its objective function. And um, and how how that is manifested is, is once again, you know, serving up data that you've staked on. And then my probability of uh, getting the reward is proportional to how much I have staked. Basically, so every time I serve up data, it rolls the dice, compares it to the difficulty, and then uh, decides whether or not I got data. And um, the difficulty uh, in the case of Bitcoin is basically the total hash rate. The difficulty in the case of Ocean is basically the total amount staked times the servings up over the last um, time interval, right? Say one week, two weeks, right? So um, it's very, very similar to Bitcoin. And it, this is actually like, you know, it's a big testament to Bitcoin as we've been going through the design of the Ocean Protocol. And I'm sure every single person who's been designing sort of tokenized protocols has seen this. Bitcoin has so many very sneaky design choices <laughs> that you don't realize at first. But uh, when you're trying to address your own challenges, if you keep going back to Bitcoin, it's like, wow, they solved that, right? Because Bitcoin could have said, okay, we're going to compute and give everything up proportionally, right? They didn't. Instead, um, it was just, you know, on um, this expected value and, uh, and the markets emerged on top, right? And that, of course, reduces attack vectors. It reduces complexity. You know, it's, it's only one winner instead of N winners, all this, right? So 
really, really big gains. And so we're taking a lot of these lessons um, from Bitcoin here and not just Bitcoin. We're looking all around and taking whatever lessons we can. Right. Yep. You know, curation markets from Simon and the token curated registries from Mike and so on. Right. Yep. So, so yeah. So I guess one thing that I so, so that all makes sense. And I do like the analogy to Bitcoin and yay, Satoshi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Um, one team Satoshi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, one question I have is so I guess. Is when someone tries to access this piece of data that I've provided there um, and that I've essentially staked to in this curation market, is there a are they like paying some of these ocean tokens to access the data and then that's the money that I'm getting or like where do where are these tokens coming from that I um, you know am getting from from providing this data? Yeah, so that's a great question, right? And overall, remember we weren't trying to you know just create a decentralized data marketplace, right? Um, that was some of the initial um, aimings, you know, in the spring of uh, 2017. But as we went along, we saw, you know, we really want to incentivize for a global data commons, right? Where people can download data without having to pay, right? And it's like, okay, well, how do we do that? You know, how do we crack that egg, right? How do we um, get people to serve up data um, and, uh, and maybe even compensate the people, the creators of the data, yet make it free for people to download it, right? And, um, how, and yeah, wait, it's actually so pause a classic for a problem, second right? there. Yeah, exactly. It's like you yeah. can't both have free data and pay the people. You know? Well, <laughs> here's the thing, right? This is a classic problem. It goes back to Stuart Brand, the famous quote, you know, information wants to be free and it also wants to be expensive, right? So it wants to be free in terms of the flow of the bits, right? It's just a natural thing um, where bits are super cheap to flow and stuff, right? But the, the part about information wants to be expensive Actually, information itself doesn't want to be expensive. You just want the creators to get paid, right? Like, you know, when we created a scribe several years ago now, um, it was all about getting the compensated, the creators compensated, right? Um, feeding their families for creating great art, et cetera, right? And, you know, that mantra has continued through to this day, right? So there are many sort of echoes of a scribe in what we're doing now. And um, so the question is, how do you compensate the creators? Um, even if they're putting like amazing sort of Creative Commons style or free data out there, right? Public domain data. And there's an answer. Right. Want to take a stab at it? Want to guess? Uh, the answer is <laughs> you create it out of nowhere. <laughs> That's exactly it. Magic internet money, right? Yeah. And, and this is the, you know, so if you think about it, right, um, with blockchains, right, that's sort of the first main use case, so I'll call it blockchain 0.0 is about store of value, right? Yep. And then sort of blockchain 1.0 was about things like immutability and provenance and that, right? And that's where like big chain to be itself really shines, right? It's so good at stuff like that. Um, you know, whether it's provenance of data or provenance of car parts or provenance of financial audit trails, right? Mm -hmm. But blockchain 2.0 is, is a much broader, bigger idea. And, um, you know, I kick myself for not seeing this sooner, but um, it's kind of this superpower. And the superpower of blockchain is that you can get people to do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. How? You give them free, you give them tokens. Where do the tokens come from? You print them, right? <laughs> but the thing is, this is actually no different than the general idea of money, right? Like money is just a shared belief uh, about the value right, of, of that token, right? So, um, so in the case of this classic paradox of information wants to be free and information wants to be expensive, well, when um, people are serving up data um, and you know betting on its future popularity, then they are getting um, compensated for it by um, magic internet money, right? By, by printing according to this um, um, mining schedule. Yep. And, you know, the ocean mining schedule, it follows a curve much like Bitcoin, just with a longer half-life because, you know, data 
it takes longer to unlock data basically that's why so so yeah let me let me pause for a second here though because i I might want to push back against this so (laughs) i and this is what i say to a lot of people when they're like asking me about you know various cryptocurrencies i'm like well there's the scarce slash collectible slash mimetic value and then there's also the you know utility value you know ethereum can be used to you know run smart contract code or whatever but it sounds like so in this ecosystem something like ocean um the, the token there the ocean coin or whatever is that that thing is being printed as magic internet money but then if i have a bunch of these ocean tokens where then who would then want them later yeah so um this is where the marketplace is sitting on top right mm-hmm. this is the the first part so uh, marketplaces of data back and forth um they can be using the ocean tokens themselves as well as, and this is where the generalization of ocean really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I described so far where ocean is the substrate where uh, there's a proof coming in, which is proof of making data available, right? Yep. Um, but, you know, if you think about the world of data, you've got data coming in in a stream or otherwise, then you often have to do some pre-processing and, um, and, and conditioning in various ways. And then you're probably going to store it, persist it for a while, and then it's going to get consumed. And, you know, there's various architectures for this. The whole world of big data is all about this, right? And, uh, and you know, maybe some of this stuff has to be private, maybe not, right? Um, you know, with things like homework encryption, et cetera, right? Uh, you can have privacy on the data itself, privacy in the compute. And uh, so with each of these things, um, there are standard ways to do this in the big data world with things like Apache Spark or Apache Flink and so on, right? Um, or, you know, as a consumer, you might be used to playing with things like Zapier or If This Then That, right? Mm-hmm. Where you kind of connect one API to the next to the next. And, um, you know, with Zapier or If This Then That, um, you don't, you know, you're paying for these different services, but all you have to do is pay uh, Zapier, right? And they pay for the services under the hood. So you pay Zapier and then um, they worry about, you know, ha- paying off the cost one level below, right? Um, and it's similar in the conception of Ocean. So in Ocean, basically, um, you've got the Ocean token to pay for these various services, um, whether it's buying data itself via the data marketplaces, or it's buying compute and passing it off to these various, you know, centralized or decentralized compute services. Um, and same thing with, you know, data cleaning or any of the rest, right? Some of the privacy preserving stuff. Um, so that's kind of a more generalized conception of it. But at the, at the summary of this, then, you know, Ocean is um, a curated uh, proofs network, um, you know, First and foremost, it's a proof of making data available, but it's also proofs of computation, proofs of storage, proofs of space-time style storage, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. And with each of those, to your question, um, Ocean tokens are, are the means of paying for that in a sort of like one place to fit it all, right? So, you know, you can view Ocean as an Apache Spark for the decentralized world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So it's, and I guess that, you know, if the more direct version of my question there was like, what is the utility value of, is, are they called Ocean? What are they, what are they called, the coins? Ocean tokens, yeah. Ocean tokens, yeah. sweet, yep. Um, yeah, that it is a, it sounds like it's a medium of exchange token for um, this full data ecosystem, both for buying data, buying compute, buying data cleaning. Is that is that kind of a, a simplified way to, to talk about the utility value? That's of part it? of it, but it's not just a medium of exchange because basically um, when people are um, staking on the data sets themselves, on the future popularity, then um, it is basically, um, you know, storing those tokens um, as... Uh, you know, this sort of lock-in of value into the network, right? Yep. So um, that is also sort of a proxy of the overall uh, value of the network. So overall, um, you know, there, there's a few different factors at play here. Uh, I should mention um, some of my colleagues actually uh, went through P- Chris Bernanski's model and actually developed a, a whole model around, you know, the value of these tokens. And the numbers came out um, 
very cool. And we actually <laughs> reviewed with Chris and stuff too. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was just very nice to see, right. Um, sort of, you know, some of that, the value, if you will, right, is the velocity of the tokens times the average transaction value and stuff, right? Sorry. Yeah. And, um, uh, with, with ocean, you know, you can apply this sort of modeling technique to do it and, and arrive at interesting numbers, right? Cool. Yeah. So, and I, I, I think you're right there to say that it is both a medium exchange token and it's a more traditional or not, I don't know, more traditional. The other big thing that people are doing in the space these days is these like bonding, um, slash staking tokens, whether it's staking for, um, governance or staking to kind of hold the network, let's think something like proof of stake, um, and, or something like bonding and live peer. So it's, and, and you're doing it in a kind of curated market way. Um, so kind of adding an additional layer on top of that. So I guess one final note before you transition over to token curated registries here is that, um, when Trent and I were talking about this kind of curve of, um, I get in first, Trink gets in second, someone else gets in third. Um, that's called a bonding curve within curated creation markets is like mm-hmm. determining what yeah. that bonding curve looks like. Um, so just wanted to put those words out there. Okay, so now let's, so I get the concept that um, you're essentially, you're using this new crypto economic primitive curation markets in order to essentially do some kind of essentially staking on data um, as a way to kind of show, hey, this is the sweetest data um, to, to the world. So how do you use token curated registries, um, which is essentially a decentralized way to make a list um what's on that registry yeah so uh overall you know the very very heart of ocean is you know this proofing times the curation market staking right and then kind of everything else around is kind of ancillary to address various attack vectors and other issues right so um one of the issues is uh for the actors in this ecosystem um there's quite a few places where um you there you know potential attack vectors and one of them is we want to have um some sort of proxy on identity, some sort of uh, way to keep one person um, uh, to, to know who one person is, roughly speaking. But we don't need to. We don't want to. If we can avoid it, we want to avoid things like KYC or anything like that, right? Because it is a you know a public network, right? And so, um, and the reason we want this is uh, when we're doing things like block rewards, what, you know, a disaster scenario in our case, what, how we see things, we don't want one data set to be so, so massively powerful that, you know, it's getting downloaded 10,000 times a day and then everyone just bets on that because it's the obvious win, right? So instead, we, we don't give a reward um, proportional to um, the amount of downloads directly. It's actually the log of the downloads. Hmm. Same thing for the stake. We don't give a reward proportional to the stake itself. We give a reward proportional to the log of the stake. And um, this is actually a, a very common tactic in the world of AI, where you actually use a log rather than the direct value, because um, it uh, focuses on the orders of magnitude mm-hmm. rather than the actual values, and that in turn um, gives a lot more diversity. So, in a sense, it, it stretches out the distribution to be much fatter tails. Mm-hmm. So, instead of just you know one or a handful of data sets um, being sort of curated on, you're going to have hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of data sets being curated on. It, and um, and the other so the other thing that's related that's sort of on the download side and then when the log on the on the staking side what this does is it um, removes sort of inordinate gains to the token whales right mm-hmm. so um, so if they really want to um, leverage all their token holdings they're actually going to have to bet on a lot more data sets right um, so but by doing that, you know, you, then you need to actually have decent identity, right? Because otherwise they're just going to game the system and still not a perfect solution. But um, if you say, OK, have this token curated registry for each actor, 
where, you know, to get in, they basically, you know, they can only get in once. Um, if you seed with a good set, et cetera, then um, they can only get in once rather than 10 times or 100 times or whatever, right, and play different games. So that's kind of um, the, the motivation. There's a few other attack vectors, too, where you want to have a decent proxy and identity. And this is sort of a nice way of doing it where it's not forcing some sort of other mandated identity, right, like government mandated, et cetera. Got it. Yeah, I think that um, in token carried registries can be seen as just a, a way in general. Token carried registries and like other reputation systems and claim systems are all on kind of a or attestation systems are on kind of they're all solving a similar problem, um, which is like, hey, here's someone in the network. How do we how do we know what their reputation is or how do we know that it's a single person and not multiple people? Um, so I think so. It sounds like yeah, you're using a TCR, a token curated registry, to say, hey, um, if I'm Reese and I'm trying to like dodge the the log side of the gains and make a bunch of different Reese's um, that it might be difficult for me to do that because there's a token curated registry which says, hey, um, this Reese 12 over here is pretty, looks kind of similar to Reese 1 and we should not allow him into the registry of whitelisted data providers. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, we were asking ourselves too, you know, should we have just a whitelist of, you know, they're either malicious or they're not, or do we want to have reputation and stuff? And, you know, we looked at a variety of reputation systems in one or two, but, um, you know, one question we continually ask ourselves is, what's the simplest thing that could possibly work, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so we were looking at, you know, for example, what if we had nothing but, say, a TCR, uh, a registry on just the data, and don't even have it for identity or anything? But then, you know, we have this list of questions we're trying to ask, like how well does it um, handle price data and referrals and spam prevention? How well does it do for the free data, the commons data, um, you know, and other questions, you know, is there greater marginal um, benefit to the owners of the tokens versus people who are just hodling, right? And um, so as we are exploring various designs of, you know, um, TCR, you know, for, for identity, should we have nothing? Should we have TCR? Should we have a heavier identity system from anything from, say, um, Civic style or U-Port style up to like KYC from banks up to, say, like Estonia e-residency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then reputation systems on top, right? Um, whether it's like star, a star rating system or something. And then same thing with the data, right? And um, where you can have everything from, okay, this is just not spam versus yes, it is with a TCR or something to... Um, a reputation system uh, in the form of a curation market or a more standard one like with stars or something else and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so we, we, we explored many combinations of these and, and against these checklists of, um, you know, how well is it solving this problem, this problem, this problem. Mm-hmm. So seven or eight key questions and another, you know, checklist of another hundred questions, including a whole bunch of attack vectors, right? And um, the, the design that we came up with actually um, addresses the questions very well with a, a sort of the simplest thing that could possibly work, right? And that's why we ended up at just this level of TCR, the registry for the actors, and just the level of the curation market for the data. Um, not heavier, not lighter, just that level. <laughs> just right. <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. So I guess maybe kind of transitioning into the second kind of half of this uh, episode here. I This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Augur, Golem, and many more. And this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. 
good understanding of, um, you know, there's big chain DB and there's a spe- and there's ocean uh, protocol, which is this you know underlying data substrate, um, and, it, and it allows for that underlying data substrate by being a protocol for these data marketplaces, and um, it, there are these various incentive games, both curation markets um, for staking around the quality of data and kind of bonding to it, and, and then also TCRs to make sure you're doing kind of reputation identity well. Um, that all kind of makes sense, but like one question that I have is, and the macro goal here is to make it the case that, uh, or, or one of the macro goals, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you know you have these, you know we're in these this data siloed world where Google and Amazon and Facebook have these massive data silos and they're in these arms races um, to get more and more data and to kind of control it all themselves and it's difficult for other people to get into the ecosystem or whatever. How like would it ever be the case in the future that you know how can we get someone like Google or Facebook, um, you know getting their data onto these data marketplaces, is that like a goal of your guys's? And and how does this relate to some of your concepts with things like tokenizing the enterprise? Yeah, so I would say, uh, yeah, actually, that's a great question, the tokenized part too. I'll get to that in a bit. But yeah. overall, um, you know, the data silos thing um, is exactly why we're doing this, right? And perhaps I'll, I will elaborate because it's really, really important. Yep. So, and I like to give a, a story that actually it happened about just a month ago. Um, this reporter from National Geographic, Rachel Bale, um, she was writing a, a story in Google Docs. She's a wildlife crime reporter. And um, when she was writing the story, she was just typing, 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 writing the story. And then suddenly her, her Google Docs froze and she had a pop up um, from Google and it said, uh, hey, you violated terms of service. We're locking you. We're freezing you. Mm-hmm. And she's like, what is going on? So she tweeted about it. And a bunch of other people replied to her saying, hey, you know, me too. This happened to me too. Me too. And, um, and every, you know, so a bunch of people are like, what's going on? What's going on? A day later, Google gave a press release saying, hey, uh, sorry about that. We had a glitch in our system. Uh, we, you know, we pushed some code where it was um, falsely uh, locking people out of the system for, um, because it had a false classification on violating terms of service. So basically, Google was running a classifier or is running a classifier. Um, on, you know, whether you're typing something that might violate the terms of service, which apparently relates to, um, well, they didn't say it, but it's, uh, you know, crime of some form and stuff, right? And wildlife crime apparently is what wasn't okay, but that was the glitch. So Rachel got back in and they, you know, and the kind of the, the hubbub died down briefly. But if you think about it, it's super scary. Google um, did not stop scanning your documents and ready to shut you out in a heartbeat in an instant. They just fix their glitch on cutting out reports of wildlife crime. But if I'm, you know, writing a high school essay on El Qaeda, um, then I could get shut out. Or um, think about democracy, right? Um, part of the main point of having a democratic society is where you can um, write about concerns of your leaders of your government and publish on it. Publish on Medium, publish in newspapers, etc. Publish on blogs, other blogs. Um, and also, you know, use digital tools of the world to organize a group of people to protest and about the government's actions, etc. But imagine you start writing about this and Google's algorithms automatically detect you and suddenly you are cut out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't only lose your own digital sovereignty. Um, it's actually a risk to democracy and freedom itself, right? And to me, like, this is so scary um, and uh and, you know, makes me, frankly, angry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just Google, right? You know, the Snowden revelations of five years ago, um, when those happened, you know, Google apparently had been um, giving data to the government since 2012, but Microsoft had been doing it since 2007. And it's not just those two. It's, it's you know, uh, Facebook and, and Amazon and so on, right? Um, so all of these guys, they have these um, 
uh, giant data silos. They control our digital lives. They have discovered that thanks to AI, actually, um, you know, they can actually they know how to take all these giant data silos and mine that data very well and and make money by selling more ads, more ads, more ads, and this sort of this data flywheel effect. And so they are totally incentivized to uh, keep these silos and keep everyone else out, right? So they say they're AI companies, but really that's a head fake. They're really data companies, and they are going to fight and fight and fight to keep those silos because that's where they make their their money from. Um, and this is dangerous to society, as I've described. Now, in Ocean, uh, what drives us is, um, you know, we're not trying to attack this head on. That is, you know, naive. Um, but instead, we, we've asked ourselves the question, um, how do we get momentum in this? And the answer is, um, you know, these companies that have both large data sets and um, AI algorithms are super rare. It's really just a handful, you know, Google, Facebook, et cetera, of the world. Um, most large enterprises have tons of data and they don't have the ability to extract value from it with AI. Why? Because all the AI researchers that they're trying to hire are off doing their own startups because they think that they can get more money that way. You know, I did AI for 20 years. I get this. These are, you know, I talk to my friends about this. And, um, and on the flip side, you've got these AI startups that they're trying to start up, but um, they're actually struggling in many cases because in order to get value from their AI models, they need reams and reams of data, right? So, um, so to them, you know, the more data they can, they can get, the better. And they're just willing to like, you know, if they could have a thousand X more data, they will take it. Their models will just swallow it, right? So what we're doing is we're working with um, the folks that have tons of data sets. These are the large enterprises as well as NGOs throughout the world. You know, we're working with XPRIZE, um, um, which is actually in turn working with uh, hundreds of NGOs throughout Africa, et cetera, with, for data sets, um, to gather data sets, et cetera. And on the flip side, um, the, the, the demand side, um, is about the AI researchers and really like engaging with that community, um, you know, that I've known since the late 90s because I've been doing AI for a long time and really connecting those, right? So connecting the data halves with the AI halves. And that's, um, that's kind of the first cut and getting strong that way in Ocean. And then what we see is that over time, people are going to get used to this idea that they have a lot more control and sovereignty over their data. And it gives them a whole lot more tools for um, new ways to rethink uh social um, networks, et cetera, right? You know, it's really, really hard to, um, to, you know, there's 2 billion people using Facebook, is it monthly now? And, um, you know, that's a very, very strong network. And, you know, Facebook has done an incredible job, right? Um, and I'm not sure, you know, many people in Facebook itself, I'm sure, aren't very happy about the extreme power that they have, right? But there are, um, there are means to get at it, to, to address this for society. And that is, you know, to, to get strong in, um, in sort of a parallel universe that isn't dependent on trying to take take down Facebook, and then one um, and then basically having the substrate for various people to help um, basically address Facebook, either the direct competitors to Facebook um, that do data better, or um, towards your initial hint, the tokenized the enterprise part. Right. And maybe so, we can talk about that, yeah, but I'll pause there. Yeah, nice. Yeah, exactly. Okay, sweet. So, um, yeah, I mean, the question that I asked was too, too, too wide reaching. So, yeah, um, that makes So, I guess uh, one thing to double check here, I, I agree that the, whenever, I mean, whenever there's centralization of power, um, it just has, it seems to often have negative ramifications from a, um, both what you, what the people do with that power perspective from like, a you know, fragility perspective in terms of what happens to it from a, um, from a privacy perspective. How much are you guys also thinking about like, you know, how much in your mind is the kind of artificial general intelligence, like AGI, making sure that there's a friendly AGI, is that in your guys' mind as well? Or, or is that kind of a, a further down the road thing? 
Uh, so overall, you know, spending time in the world of AI, I know that well. And, you know, the folks at SingularityNet, Ben, their friend, I help advise them and so on, right? Uh, help them with their token design and stuff. They, too, are using curation markets, which is cool. So, um, you know, um, and uh, Simon's happy with that. So overall, you know, AGI, I think about, um, uh, you know, in, in the next few years, it's not really an issue. Um, uh, farther along, um, certainly, um, I'm, you know, I see that the technology will probably come sooner than people think, um, and we should be worried. Um, I don't have a tenure for, to protect, so um, or a reputation. Uh, sorry, um, uh, you know, a 100-year-old institution that fires me if I say something that affects their long term. So I don't care, and I'm saying I am worried about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's more near-term things that I'm even more worried about. Um, you know, like AI DAOs. Um, they're incredibly interesting. This idea that you can have you know, think like a DAO running on Ethereum, running around, running around, but it actually has its own AI decision-making abilities. Yep. Um, and, you know, it could be generating art and, you know, our crypto kitties these days, I guess, and, you know, making millions perhaps, because it can do it all automatically and sell more, sell more, sell more. And, um, but it doesn't have to be something so mundane either. It, um, it could be, for example, um, you know, mining code from um, GitHub and or generating its own code with like genetic programming, which I did for several years, yeah. um, generating its own code and doing, you know, um, whatever gives it value, right? Um, it could be very open-ended. And, um, and I'm very worried about that because overall, um, we might find ourselves giving more and more of our resources to AI simply for convenience. Yeah. Um, you know, handing, you know, instead of self-driving cars to be self-driving self-owning cars mm-hmm. so that this could be a whole network of all the cars out there that's sort of like nature 2.0 that where they're self-driving self-owning and same thing um with you know trucks and the power grid and even the utilities around us right um and so you there's a positive and negative way to frame it the, the negative way is oh man you know as humans we give all of our power to these machines um these these you know um DAOs that are you know with ai decision making abilities um, and that could mean we kind of like accidentally fully give up control. The positive way of thinking about it is that, um, you know, there's nature 1.0 with the soil and the trees and the wind and the earth and the fire and all this, and it's sort of this cradle for humanity. But why can't we extend that cradle for humanity with silicon and steel, right, uh, with these self-driving cars, et cetera, towards sort of a new age of abundance, right? Um, so, and, and the answer will probably lie somewhere in between, yeah. as it usually does, right? Um but uh, we do need to talk about AI DAOs more broadly in society, right? It's as you know powerful as the bomb or as CRISPR. Um, it's just there isn't a lot of awareness yet, right? Yep. Yeah, I think that yeah, AI DAOs are um, yeah, it's essentially just any kind of objective function with capital um, and kind of like voting power behind it that just kind of goes and does whatever its objective function wants to do, and and we got to make sure that those objective functions are. Are, are well-designed ones. Um, I guess one thing to check in, uh, like, so, you know, you're talking about cre- creating this kind of parallel universe um, and, and you know, creating this big, you know, community of the AI researchers and the data people and what have you. Is there a, it, it, you know, are you using some of these concepts around, like, um, have you heard of, like, spiral dynamics or teal, which are these, like, bottom-up organic ways to kind of build movements? Um, are, the, are you kind of pulling from those things, or have you heard about those concepts? Uh, a little bit. Um, maybe not as much as we could be. Um, okay. You know, there's a lot of concepts in various ways, you know. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, because I spend a lot of time in the world of evolution and computation, we think about that a lot, um, mm-hmm. about, you know, 
bottom-up emergent complexity, yep. where you might have a very simple rule set um, or a few rule sets, but then um, you have very complex dynamics that emerge on top, right? And um, so, uh, and we see that with Bitcoin, right? It's got a very simple objective function, just maximize um, the hash rate. And you think about the crazy ecosystem that has emerged on top, right? Or from the AI world, things like a simple cellular automata, where you just have a very, very simple rule function, but you can have very complicated patterns or chaotic systems, right? You know, even a chaotic system of one variable, you know, just very, very simple function can have really, really complex dynamics. So we think about those. Um, and, you know, there's many fields that we try to draw on, right, um, and look at. Obviously, there's a lot from economics. And um, I think you mentioned mechanism design already. And um, it's interesting if you drill down for mechanism design, you know, one drill down is that um, uh, one framing is if you assume that people are telling the truth, sort of the shelling point of truth, all this, um, then that sort of proves a bunch of other stuff. And you can drill down a bit more, and it ends up actually where you're at objective functions, right? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the link to, um, you know, thinking of this stuff as designing evolutionary algorithms, right? So when we're designing the tokenized ecosystems, you know, because I've designed so many evolutionary algorithms um, in my career for various things, you know, creative circuit design, um, uh, function evolution, all this, then um, I think about it this way. And then it's like, okay, um, you know, there's an objective function you're trying to minimize or maximize. You've got some constraints. Um, you've got, you know, in the case of, of, you know, there's this parallel between evolution algorithms and tokens in general, right? Um, you've got the block rewards that happen, you know, every 10 minutes in Bitcoin. In the case of evolution algorithms, you've got a generational update. And then you've, the key thing is you've got these agents running around in both cases that you can't really control. You know, in the case of evolution algorithms, they're individuals. They mutate, they cross over, they do whatever. And all you can do is evaluate them. You know, every generation is like, did you do well? Great. You get to live. If you didn't, you die, right? Um, or maybe you, you know, and you, you let them live and have babies and change some more, right? In, and in token design, uh, it's similar. You know, these agents, they run around, agents as in people doing mining, et cetera. And um, if they do well, then, you know, on average, they get more um, tokens, you know, rewards. And sometimes also, um, if, if they act badly, they get their stake slashed, right? So there's such similar, similar um, uh, phenomenon in many, many ways that you can leverage the ideas from evolutionary algorithm design for um, for token design. And, you know, it continually surprises me how many insights uh, that, that we're getting that way. Nice. Um, and I, I think it'll continue. And uh, I look forward to, like, even strengthening the link between that and sort of the higher level theories of mechanism design. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I haven't personally made that uh, connection yet between mechanism design and then like drilling down deeper layers there but i definitely love the both i mean evolutionary algorithm are great and uh, generative kind of complex um systems is a great field as well um so i guess kind of transitioning to the something that we want to talk about which is this tokenizing the enterprise and um i guess let me let's actually yeah now let's let's take, take a bit on tokenizing the enterprise um because for me this is kind of the optimal future reality where you have something like you know the facebook's and the google like right now you have facebook which where you have these misaligned incentives where you know facebook just wants to addict you for more and more time and you know the people who are using it and are uh and the advertisers just want to put things that are clickable um because they're trying to maximize their clicks and their um eventual like roi and what have you um and and i feel like the people who are on the other side the users they want to it would be nice if there was more like meditation apps or whatever through facebook or if you know it wasn't so much outrage or filter bubbles that were pushed into to my Facebook feed. So when I imagine the future, it's like this awesome future where Facebook is kind of a platform co-op where it is both the ownership is, you know, decentralized and distributed and the governance is distributed and decentralized. And you have a bunch of different UX layers that can be put on top of this underlying data substrate. 
that's kind of this future awesome maybe world of tokenizing the enterprise. Do you see, I guess, where do you see kind of ocean protocol fitting into that? And like, or how do you see tokenizing the enterprise things starting to happen either with ocean protocol or in the blockchain space more generally? Sure. Yeah. So, um, well, in general, obviously, yeah, like I'm clearly a big fan of the idea of tokenizing the enterprise. I've written about it on its own. And um, maybe to have, you know, for the for your audience uh, to just flesh out the Facebook example. Right. Yep. So you hit the nail on the head. The align the incentives are not aligned. Right. You've got the users where, you know, uh, they just want to do stuff, connect with their friends and so on. Um, but they don't necessarily want to give up their privacy, especially, you know, going to the future. Whereas with Facebook, they, they actually want to maximize how much information they want to extract from you. So there's always this classic tension of, you know, privacy versus not, right? And Facebook is trying to use it, train its users away from um, wanting to be private about their data. Um, so it's this tension. And we see it in other places too, right? Um, you know, uh, with Visa, it's a classic example. Even the founder himself of Visa, um, he, he mentioned this, this error they made um, the banks are happy about Visa, and um, the end-user customers are generally happy, but the mom-and-pop merchants are not um, because they're not part of the overall ecosystem. They don't get the financial rewards, and that's where they're getting charged 5%, 7%, um, typically fees, um, uh, uh, by, by Visa um, because their interests are not aligned with that of Visa, right? So the founder, D. Hawk, he actually talks about this and wished that they had found a way to incorporate that. So interests misaligned, and of course, um, you know, we're on the blockchain space, so we realized that you know blockchains are a really great tool to align interests. And how do you align interests? Well, you get everyone to be ho holding tokens, and then everyone is incentivized for the value of the tokens to rise. That's a simple mechanism, right? The challenge is, you know, you want to get the the tokens into the uh, hands of the uh, of the various um, stakeholders. So uh, for for the case of Facebook, what does this look like? You know, how do you take Facebook from its sort of centralized um, uh, approach right now to sort of this glorious decentralized future. And um, the key idea is you want uh, the existing shareholders to own tokens and you want the community, the users, um, to hold tokens. How? One possible recipe is um, you take the, all the existing shares and um, you convert them to tokens. And then um, living on a blockchain, um, and at the same time, you um, uh, print another 2x, like another 100% um, more tokens, um, and distribute those to all the users um, based on their usage of Facebook over the last, you know, lifetime of Facebook, right, about 15 years. And um, so now you have um, uh, a whole bunch of tokens spread throughout, you know, the, the, existing, share, the existing shareholders and the new users. And um, a pretty good argument can be made that now because Facebook's um, no longer um, having misaligned incentives, you know, uh, everyone is pointing in the same direction to raise the value of the tokens, then the overall value of the Facebook token could go up um, in comparison to simply if it was held by shareholders before. Because, you know, the interests of the shareholders uh, are now aligned with the interests of the users, right? And um, so if it goes up by at least 2x, then it pays for itself, right? If it goes up by 10x, then everyone's really happy, right? If it goes down a bit, so be it. It's an experiment. And um, so this, to me, is the, the ideal way. Now, um, to your question of how might Ocean relate to this, um, or Big Chain, um, I, I, I keep prerequisite to doing this. If you're going to have sort of Facebook as sort of a, um, you know, ultimately, it could be just tokens like that, like sort of, sorry, as the first cut, just tokens replacing shares. But really, you want to have utility value, right? So you kind of want to turn all the different Facebook services into fat protocols, if you will, right? Yep. Um, but to do that, then you need to have... Um, the, the, the compute and the data tokenize itself, right? So a prerequisite to all of this is to sort of APIize every sort of internal service um, 
and then um, decentralized. And so where Ocean and Big Chain play in is basically playing key roles on the, in case of Ocean, it's on the tokenizing uh, the data. And in Big Chain, it's on um, the databases below for the just decentralized, you know, whether it's that data is made available via Ocean or otherwise, it's just actually this sort of, um, you know, lower on the stack of storing the structured metadata, right? So that's how they play a role. Um, and you might think, oh, this is a big stretch, this is a big stretch, right? And um, the thing is, we're already seeing signs of this. So um, with, with medium-sized companies, so a small to medium-sized company that did it was uh, Numerai, and they've been going down this path where they started out centralized, and uh, bit by bit by bit, they're going more and more decentralized. In this case, they're a, you know, a crypto-style hedge fund. Just Initially, they were just a hedge fund that had a crowd of data scientists, you know, 10,000 data scientists making predictions with models, and then they would get paid out, and um, Numerai would be the middleman in all of it. But then um, the challenge there was um, if I'm a data scientist A and you're data scientist B, um, you are um, you might not tell me about Numerai because if I'm really good and you're not as good, then why would you tell me? Because I might take more earnings than you and, you know, it's a zero sum game. But if we all have Numerai tokens, Numerair to be precise, um, then uh, you'll tell me because uh, if I join and actually um, help do a better job in prediction, everyone wins, right? So Numerai did that, and they went through a series of steps to decentralize more and more and more. And, um, you know, that's a very great example. Kick is another one, it, you know, a messaging service that has been going through a, a process of tokenization as well. Um, if you're a large company, you don't need to tokenize the whole thing at once, right? Amazon famously um, converted themselves into basically uh, a series, it, they API themselves right yep. so within Amazon they're all APIs so what they could do is with even just a single one of their services that they run even internally they could try a tokenized version and then see if that works and if that works they do it to another service and then another and then another and then you know give it one year five years and suddenly they um, you know they're fully decentralized right and that could be very cool because what's happened is you have melted these uh, giant companies these sort of octopus or octopi um, into the community right so you know melting the, t the enterprise into the community and um, I see it as a really exciting outcome, just like you. And sort of a very quick thing, um, there's this classic innovator's dilemma challenge of, you know, if you're a big enterprise, uh, how do you um, react to changes from, you know, bottom-up um, people, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't react quickly enough, then you're Kodak losing out to digital cameras and you just die. And the classic solution is simply to create a spinoff, uh, fund that a bit, and then as it gets big to a billion-dollar business or bigger, then you buy it back. But here's another solution that actually goes to the heart of the problem directly, Right. And to me, that's very exciting, you know, sort of a new solution to innovator's dilemma. I'll yeah. stop there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that the, um, yeah, I was I was going to reference the Amazon business units as well. Um, and yeah, the a API Ising. I think that the, the key thing that we'll see here is, yeah, with something like Numerai, it's, you know, by using Numerair, they were able to align those incentives. And hopefully we'll be able to see with Kick or with Props and you now or whatever that these companies have said, oh, man, this is interesting. Uh, various stakeholders within our kind of business model haven't been aligned. And if they are aligned, then there's more value for everyone. And so that's got to be the key kind of hypothesis that we need to prove um, to these bigger companies to say, hey, this is actually better for everyone if you align incentives. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. And I also agree with you exactly. that, yeah, as you APIize, then those APIs turn into various things that the blockchain world has been building, like um, Ocean, like Big Chain. Okay, so and kind of to wrap up here, let's talk about this final um, uh, kind of 
article that you wrote recently and some of these things that you've been talking about around this essentially a kind of a staged map um, that thinks about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and this goal for us as a society right now where there's these converging exponential trends and we're trying to transition to this world of abundance that you talked about and the nature 2.0 with all the silicon around us. Um, so could you kind of describe what, you know, how you think about that in terms of this like map um, and, and especially what would be the first, some of the first things to do um, on this map? Sure. So, um, so thank you for, yeah, you're interested in this. I, I find it fun. And maybe for the audience, uh, a first cut way to sort of approach this is, you know, what's the biggest idea you could possibly dream, right? Um, and not just sort of you as your idea, but like for humanity, you know, what's the, you know, grandest goal we could go for for humanity as a civilization, right? Um, or a set of goals, right? Because, you know, maybe everyone has their own goal, just like own goals in life, right? So for each, each person, what might that be, right? And um, there's some things we know we don't want. There's some things we know we do want. Um, there's things in the near term. There's things in the medium term and the longer term. And um, and overall, it's a journey, right? You know, civilization's a journey, not a de destination. <laughs> and um, yeah. so, uh, and, you know, some of these longer term things to me are things like, you know, not being stuck on one planet or even two, but actually exploring the cosmos and, um, you know, not only exploring it, but why not reshaping it, right, towards these, you know, uh, long-term futures of things like Dyson spheres and stuff, right? Um, and, you know, this is exciting possible futures that are, you know, a long ways out, but why not think about them and then ask yourselves, okay, if these are the long-term futures, um, what are the steps to get there, right? And um, why not map these out, right? Step one to step two to step three and so on, right? And um, it, it's interesting, there hasn't been a lot of explicit discussion about this explicit mapping. Instead, it's in the heads of a lot of, you know, super nerds or technologists. Um, you know, myself and friends have sat down, you know, drawing out maps over beers and stuff like this for fun for many years, actually. And, um, and there's other sort of, you know, lots of initiatives around society and stuff in various ways, right? Um, things like you've got the XPRIZE or the Gates Foundation or the UN. UN has its 17 goals to sort of like make a better civilization, right? Or the X Prize is their various prizes um, that they think will help drive civilization together, you know, together one more step, you know, initially from, you know, getting into space cheaply uh, twice in a row to the Lunar X Prize to AI prizes and so on. And the Gates Foundation for things like, you know, curing malaria or, you know, um, toilets that don't use water, etc. And these are all really grand, wonderful, wonderful goals, right? But every single one of those goals is sort of like just one step out, right? It's not two steps, it's not three steps. And, you know, many people talk about two steps or three steps and dream about them and write about them. But um, it, it's hard to, like, what if we can link, you know, if we do step one and then step, it will unlock the ability to do step two and then step three. Or maybe we need to do step one and two and three and then we can do step four, right? So, and, and there's lots of examples in various things, right? For example, okay, if we want to get to Mars, well, we need to have, um, you know, get not just get to Mars, but get to Mars where we can actually create a civilization, well, then we need to have um, really cheap rockets into space. Well, how do we get really cheap rockets into space? We need to have reusable rockets. Okay, great. And then also, you know, what about when we're on Mars? You know, what are the things we need? Um, or if we want, you know, towards this idea of abundance and so on, um, uh, or this risk of AI taking all the jobs, right? There's this worry that AI takes all the jobs before we figure out, um, you know, uh, new jobs. And um, it's not only a worry, I think it's a very big risk, right? You know, 3 million jobs in America will be lost to trucking alone when trucking goes autonomous. And there's already truck, autonomous trucks in production, right, that are driving on the roads. So, um, and that will not just take the trucking jobs, it will also decimate middle, middle America with the, the motels and hotels and 7-Elevens and so on, right? So um, one solution to that, for example, is uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income. 
Um, and of course, there's naysayers on that's fine. There's actually been a lot of experiments in the data on that. It's very promising, right? Um, you know, blockchain actually solves the distribution problem of, of UBI, right? Um, and there's, you know, various related efforts out there um, that, that help for that. But a, a simple way to think about it is, um, imagine there's a UBI chain running, running, running. Um, you sign up for it, prove that you're your own identity. And then um, anytime new money flows into the chain, you get your cut. You know, um, everyone gets an equal cut. So, you know, as time goes on, more and more people sign up. So you've solved the distribution problem, but what about the supply problem, right? How do you solve that? How do you get money into that? And there's various ideas for that. But um, if you manage to crack UBI, then you actually um, de-risk the um, problem of AI taking all the jobs. Um, and, you know, if AI takes jobs, even with, a you know, 10% of jobs very aggressively, then we could be having, you know, seeing revolts, Luddite-style revolutions and stuff, right? So it's really important to try to address these. Um, but then, you know, going farther out, um, I'll just give one more final example of, of this. So uh, right now we're seeing, you know, early VR, right? And we're seeing early AR too. But, um, you know, the VR isn't quite there yet. It's expensive. It hasn't quite hit mainstream. There's lots of good attempts. It's still probably got two or three years worth of Moore's Law, you know, of this uh, improvements in performance of the chips, you know, that sort of battery power um, versus the screen resolution, et cetera, um, before we get something that's really good. And, you know, the form factors need to get solved. And only once we get that really good for VR can we do a, a good job in AR because that has much more severe power constraints. So sort of VR will lead to AR. And then once we have AR then we can start to, like, the first cut AR, which might be just simple overlays, uh, like very lightweight head-up display type things on our glasses or uh, contact lenses. But then beyond that, um, you know, what about AR that's fully repainting reality? Um, and, you know, that's a possibility. Um, it just will take that much more compute power, et cetera, right? And getting the form factor right, et cetera. Um, and then you can keep going um, to things beyond that. Um, so these are all different steps. And all these things interrelate, everything from solving malaria to AI and UBI and going to Mars and all of these. There's a lot, a lot of technologies that are general purpose technologies that, that help each of these, like AI, blockchain, and these, right? But there are also risks. Um, so anyway, overall, um, imagine if this, you know, I, I described a cluster of these things with sort of linkages, a few linkages between, but imagine if there was a map out there that just was out there that um, people could see. And not only see, they could actually contribute to it and they could propose their own ideas. And maybe it has, you know, 30 nodes initially with a few um, steps in between as sort of this dag of civilization. Not unlike you play in the video game civilization as a technology tree. But here's the thing. Imagine that you can add to it. You can suggest whatever you want and add to it and curate it. And the key thing is, imagine if you can have um, a Bitcoin address or an Ethereum address or whatever attached to each of these nodes that people propose. And... Um, so if you like an idea, you can actually fund it. You can put, you know, $100 or $100 million into any given node. And once it crosses some sort of threshold, something sparks, right? Maybe um, there becomes an X prize for it, where, say, a $10 million X prize to solve a particular goal X, right? Um, of, like, you know, solving VR with certain latency or solving, um, you know, um, malaria um, in, in some better way. Um just like we've seen with, you know, things like Gates Foundation and XPRIZE, but generalized to things, you know, not just one step ahead, but two steps ahead, three steps ahead, and curated by the crowd itself, right? And so basically, you know, there's billions of dollars that the, the blockchain ecosystem has generated in value. So rather than um, those billions of dollars to, you know, doing ads a little, little bit better, which is actually cool still, but why not, you know, civilization level stuff, right? And, you know, amazingly, you know, we can see where things like, you know, um, a file system for the planet um, or a database for the planet or a data substrate for the planet, all of these things actually do fit in, right? So even when trying to select different crypto projects that are ICOing and whatnot, right, 
is it on the map, right? So overall, I call this thing the map. Is it on the map? Is it actually potentially helping humanity to drive humanity forward in, in some way? And when I say drive forward, um, once again, I, I, I mean that in the sense of whatever you want. But there's a framing sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is just for individuals where the lowest level is barely getting by, barely feeding your family, to the very top level, which is you know full-on self-actualization, you know Ben Franklin style, whatever. But not just for, for barely getting by as individuals, um, to the self-actualization of individuals, not just that, but for society itself, right? What does it mean for society itself to self-actualize, to be like Ben, ben Franklin? Um, and I see that this map is potentially a way to start getting there, right? Um, so once again, it's a civilization dig with crypto addresses attached to fund these, these ideas. Um, and that is, you know, the ideas come from the crowd, um, the money comes to the crowd. It's all curated by the crowd. And um, it basically gives us all a context towards the sort of society level stuff that we're building, not just for the next one year, but the next five years, 10 years, 10,000 years. Yeah, I love it. And it's pretty hilarious how um, how aligned that is with some of this other um, commons work that I'm doing these days around essentially, and it's all about this leveraging the crowd and some of this generative complexity things that we were talking about where it's like, hey, we are essentially creating these various um, bounties slash Patreon slash stake trees around these given goals and impact outcomes. Um, and and the, the map itself is curated by the crowd and the um, the amount of money that's being put towards things is curated by the crowd. Um, and then, yeah, one thing that I would say is that um, one it, with it from the DAG mindset, and a DAG is a distributed acrylic or acyclic graph rather, um, and it's like a from this to that, then that, then whatever. Um, I think my instinct, and, and I'll share this um, in a bit, uh -huh. is is that there is a is that some of these these systems and some of these essentially nodes in that map that you're talking about um, need to be co-evolved at the same time um, in a simultaneous fashion um, and and that is uh, that's kind of necessary for the system itself to go forward um, but yeah. <laughs> with that I think it's uh, it's time for us to end today so Trent thank you so much for coming on both talking about uh, what you guys are doing at ocean and big chain how that relates to um, tokenizing enterprise and then also how it might relate to uh, the map my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was great. Um, and for those of you who are listening, if you want to support me, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash Rieslandmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Um, also, I'd love feedback on this one because this is was an hour and 15 minutes, um, and usually we do like 30 or 45. So we'd love your feedback there. Thanks so much, everybody, and goodbye. Goodbye.